0: Emeritus Professor Trevor Parmenter is a specialist in development disabilities and he's passionate about support and pathways for adults with such disabilities. After he retired from the University of Sydney's Chair of Development Disability Studies, where he was the inaugural director, he's pursued this passion in a number of areas. Hello, I'm Jane Klein and Trevor, I'd like to know about some of these areas, including a project in Singapore that you're involved in. Can you tell us about it?
1: The current one uh, is to assess the level of self-advocacy a group of young people with intellectual disabilities have developed over a period of three or four months. Uh, My role at the moment is to assess their language and their quality of life or well-being prior to the program starting. And then I'm going to reassess them after the the training program has completed. Uh, to indicate whether there has been any change in their uh, their language competence and also their uh, feeling of well-being. Is this a good
0: time to talk about what that means? What is well-being? Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, uh, well-being has, has, has had different terms. The, 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 mo- the more popular one is probably quality of life. Um, and that's been a uh, quality of life, actually, uh, quality of life research commenced in probably in the 1940s, 50s, and the main index in those years was uh, w- were economic, uh, such as a, uh, your house, uh, your salary, the suburb you lived in. Um, subsequently, uh, we've moved into more qualitative indices. Uh, my own interest has been in assessing the quality of life of people with disabilities, um, and
0: is, is, is that difficult to measure?
1: Um, not really. There are some fairly standard tools. I have um, colleagues in many countries who have developed tools. Uh, in Australia, the, um, the most popular one uh, for both people with disabilities and those without um, is the Cummins uh, Wellbeing Scale. Uh, professor Robert Cummins, or oh, he's also a retired professor uh, from Deakin University, he developed this some um, thirty. 30-plus years ago, um, and he actually uses the scale to measure the well-being of the general population of Australia. Uh, it's part of an international study, and he it takes data on that periodically. We, w- we would uh,
0: see the results of that every now and again.
1: We would, yes, uh, and you'd simply need to, to um, Google Cummins, C-U-M-M-I-N-S, Robert Cummins, and uh, you'd get a full um, picture of, of his work. Um, of interest to me, particularly, has been his work with people with intellectual disabilities, and he has a modified scale. In fact, uh, the first scale he developed was for people with uh, cognitive problems, uh, and that's the one that I am currently using in Singapore. Uh, and it's a ten-item, no, it's a nine-item scale, and basically directed to questions like, "How do you feel about your life? How do you feel about your life in the? How, how do you feel about your life in the future?" Um, it talks about um, how you feel about your friends.
0: And what kind of responses do you get from the people that you're working with in Singapore?
1: It's it's rather interesting from a researcher's perspective. Uh, people with intellectual disabilities often um, do not like to portray their lives as, as being unhappy. And so one of the problems we're finding is that they'll often tend to rate their, their feeling of well-being higher than we might see on an objective scale uh, there are objective scales uh, as well as the qualitative scales which test your your feelings the uh, uh, the objective scales do talk about income and housing and so on and so there's often a disjunction between the the, the qualitative or subjective element uh, for people who have cognitive problems because they, they tend to have a what we call an acquiescence set. They want to, they want to please you. And so they'll often uh, uh, rate their feelings higher than on an objective scale than we would. Uh, so there is often a, a contrast.
0: So how do you get around that?
1: You can use both, both the data to, uh, to say, well, on an objective scale, uh, we could improve their housing, uh, we could improve their support, uh, we could improve their access to transport. These are, the, these are some of the objective issues. And that is why the self-advocacy uh, movement is pushing for these people to actually give their real feelings about uh, how their life is going. And so we, we're getting comments like, oh, I wish, the, I wish people wouldn't tease us. I wish people wouldn't stare at us. Um, I wish people wouldn't say rude things about us. I wish um, the bus drivers would help us. And so they are becoming more, in a sense, more realistic about some of the shortcomings in their lives. And this is most valuable.
0: That is interesting. What, what follows up on this research?
1: It's, it's used to convince governments and other support networks that uh, there are some gaps in support services. And uh, that's, that's one, of the, one of the main reasons.
0: Now, in Singapore, presumably, language would form part of your research. Did you say something about uh, seeing it, if their language improves?
1: Um, it's, not their, it's not languages you may be inferring because they can all speak English in Singapore. Uh, no, it's their, their, their competence in language. Um, many have... Uh, and it's more so communication than language. Uh, it's how will they communicate their message. And that's so, all part of self-advocacy. And the self-advocacy, they practice speaking out, they practice being more assertive. Um, and so the, um, the, the, the scales, that the language scales, or the communication scales I'm using is hoping to tap into improvements in that. And so I've been doing a, a baseline assessment, then I do a follow-up assessment. And, and this is one of the rationales, is to actually let the people who are running the program know that things are succeeding. But as importantly, we have to convince the Singapore government that the funds they're giving are being usefully uh, spent.
0: And you do have to quantify things in some ways. Oh, yes,
1: indeed, indeed. So, um, uh, But in addition to the um, the objective scales on their um, communication and to some extent on their quality of life or their well-being, uh, I'm also interviewing their families Um they're actually videoing some of the training sessions and so I will um, view the, um, the videos and, and I'll be able to perceive shifts in uh, individuals' uh, growth. Uh, I'm going to interview the families to see how they feel, whether their son or daughter has improved in being assertive. The irony in all of this uh, self-advocacy movement is they may become very assertive um, and express wishes that are contrary to the wishes of their families. Yes, and that needs to be handled carefully. It does, but it's no different from uh, the general population when your uh, your teenage uh, children uh, start to assert their independence. Um, um, Sadly, uh, particularly in the area of developmental disabilities, families tend to treat uh, their disabled son and daughter as, as an eternal child, and they just cannot comprehend, in many cases, that that child is an ordinary human being physiologically no different from the rest of the population. And so uh, puberty does present some challenges for those families because uh, not only is the the, sort of the, the the hormonal changes come, but they also have the challenge of you know, this perceiving this person still as a child. Um, and those of us who are parents tend to perceive all our children as children most of their lives, but we do cope with their independence. And, and interestingly, uh, some of the families I've interviewed already are quite happy with the concept that their son and daughter will maybe say um, uh, we wish to do things which we would prefer them not to do. So it does have to be a whole-of-family program. It, it, indeed, because we're, uh, we're encouraging the families to support the program. Um, one of the rationale is that this young person will grow older, uh, will live almost as long as the family and will outlive the parents. And so, one of the levers that I use in my work is to convince the family that the more they can help their son and daughter become independent, the more they can rest easy. That when they're no longer able to help, when they're no longer there, that their son and daughter will have a level of independence that will save them from being exploited, abused. Um, however, in the area of developmental disability, um, for many, many of these young people, uh, they will need lifelong support. Um, But they don't need to be locked away in institutions as we once did. Um, And many families um, went along with that approach because they thought their child was safe uh, and looked after. after. Uh, Sadly, many weren't.
0: So how old are these children that you're talking about?
1: Um, They're all young adults. Yes, they'd be in their um, uh, late teens, very late teens or uh, Mm. mid-twenties.
0: Can you tell me about the structure of the program? You go to Singapore fairly regularly?
1: Yes, not only for this program. I also teach um, in the uh, government body called the Social Services Institute um, and I run courses there for support staff. Um, and the, the course that I've been teaching for several years is uh, positive behaviour support because one of the, uh, one of the many difficulties um, people with developmental disabilities have, and particularly those that may have autistic behaviours, uh, are behaviour problems, and uh, staff are just unable to comprehend how to handle those problems. So I teach a course in that and have done for the last nearly 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was director of a research centre, um, from which I've retired, um, my centre still conducts uh, diploma courses, and uh, uh, I'm uh, I'm about to enrol a doctoral student. I've also taught students from Singapore who've come to um, Sydney University to do higher degrees, uh, building on the initial courses that we ran in Singapore, and they've come to and. Uh, the particular course that I'm thinking of is the one that they can do by distance education. So they didn't have to actually come to Sydney mm. uh, to get their, uh, their Masters in uh, Developmental Disability. Mm.
0: Which makes it a lot easier all around. Yes. And while you're not in Singapore, does the program with the self-advocacy, does that continue on? Oh, yes, it? I'm
1: not running it. No, I'm, I'm at the moment of that particular project, I'm just assessing the outcomes. Mm. Um, But I do other things. I do consultancies with disability organisations, many organisations. I'm working with the Down Syndrome Association on building the capacity of their staff.
0: Mm. And in Australia, are there similar problems that are faced by parents with developmentally delayed children?
1: The problems are worldwide. They're they're no different from Mm. country to country. I have a strong philosophy that... um, Uh, All countries approach the same problems, maybe at a different time in their trajectory. However, uh, the problems are so similar. Mm. It's it's quite uncanny that um, uh, even though there are cultural differences, uh, but I can give you some strong examples of how, whether it be in Mexico or whether it be in Chile, whether it be in Finland, Iceland, uh, South Africa, these are all countries I have worked in, um, the the problems are, are so similar.
0: And it sounds as though the similar approach will help to alleviate will assist problems.
1: yes it, it will uh, our, our research is can be generalized our findings can be generalized, particularly in the health area, um, where we also concentrate our research a lot um, I mean they have the same body, so they have the same physical problems um, in in other areas of uh, outside of health and just daily living activities that's where some cultural issues do appear and uh, you have to be respectful uh, of of those cultural issues for instance Asian families tend to be a little more possessive than uh, say Western families but I can go back to the 1960s and see that Western families were just as possessive as the families in Singapore or the families in Thailand. So again these underlying common traits which seem to uh, be no different even given the culture, the cultural differences. It's, it's the way you have to approach it that you have to be respectful.
0: Mm. And do you think that there's been a big shift in community perceptions?
1: Well I, I'm... Uh, I'm always wanting to be a positive person and I think there has been, worldwide, there certainly have been advances. There are still gaping holes in our support system. In uh, Australia as well as... In a, oh, yes, in Australia. Australia. Even though you know, we, we're one of the more advanced uh, countries in the, in the area of disability, um, there are still challenges. And, uh, uh, but from a positive perspective, um, we have advanced... Uh, but in some countries, they're still locking uh, young people away because um, they feel that's the best, that's in their interests. And, and uh, of course, it's a two-edged sword. They also, even though they say, oh, it's in their interests, you know, they're safe, they're going to be fed, they're going to be toileted and so on. Um, but there's also a little bit of a feeling um, it's protecting the community because there is still a stereotype or a stigma that uh, people with developmental disabilities are, are a threat uh, they pose a threat because they're, uh, they're not quite like us and uh, particularly in the area of cognitive difficulties uh, right back in 4000 years ago Plato and Aristotle talked about the intact mind as being this being the key factor of, of humanity and so it takes a lot of time and talking, convincing people That even though a person has a low ability, they're still a human being and they still need to be respected. And we still need to listen to them. And we'll particularly give them respect as a citizen of the country, equal citizen. But it really challenges that concept of equality and equity.
0: Uh, I won't say improvements, but are there uh, changes in the way the disabled people then interact within the community after a program?
1: Yes, indeed, indeed, um, both people with physical disabilities who have traditionally been very strong self-advocates because they they, they often can communicate quite forcibly um, and uh, particularly those that have had accidents and uh, although there are some that may have had brain injury where their capacity to speak out has often been... Uh, Uh, affected Uh, but generally um, people who have uh, paraplegia quadriplegia and and sensory impairments particularly those with hearing or vision uh, impairments they've always been able to speak up but in recent years more so uh, even in past years even those even that population have been depressed and their views not respected the people with developmental disabilities that's just starting to emerge I'll give you a good example that one of my very good friends in Australia, Robert Strike, who was the founder of the self-advocacy movement in... Well, the first self-advocacy movement in Australia for people with intellectual disabilities. Robert was the, 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 the driving force, and he's just received an Order of Australia. And in my view, probably the first Australian with an intellectual disability to have ever received an Order of Australia.
0: So that shows that it's generally at least being recognised. And, and
1: what makes me feel extra proud is that he has the same order that I have.
0: <laughs> yes. I
1: mean, the order of Australia has different levels and, and Robert has an AM and as I have an AM. And I think, well, what's good for a professor is good for a, for a person with intellectual disability. And that's a, I think that's, a, in my life of uh, 83 years, that has been one of my most uh, wonderful achievements because I was one of those who helps to nominate him for that award and, uh, and obviously the committee took all the evidence into account.
0: Well, that's, that's a great story Trevor, yes, <laughs> fantastic, yes. and uh, there could be more on the way. Oh yes, uh, watch this space. <laughs> Trevor, what kind of pathway did you yourself follow on the way to the Centre of Development Disability Studies?
1: My background is uh, I'm a teacher. You can say that in terms of uh, what you normally think when I say I'm a teacher, you think, oh, well, he teaches kids, which I did, taught kids for 21 years, and then quite accidentally fell into uh, teaching children with disabilities. Um, I say accidentally. It was quite uh, serendipitous, really. It, it was uh, not, no plans, and that interested me no end. In I became a school principal in a special school, and uh, then I moved on to Macquarie University to uh, teach teachers. But my passion, having been a principal, uh, I often wondered what my students would do when they left school. And so my abiding interest has been in the post-school support needs of people with disabilities. Um, uh, What are they going to do with their lives? I mean, there's an intensive education program in Australia particularly. I think we've got a, a really good program for people with disabilities at school. But they fall off the cliff once they leave school. And so it's been my passion ever since to uh, to work on adult support systems, employment, uh, independent living, community living, um, and good health. After 23 years at Macquarie, that led me to, um, again, another serendipitous event. Um, a member of a small group that said we should have a research centre, somewhat similar to the research centres across America, where I'd visited many, many times. And I was impressed with the Research Centres in Developmental Disabilities that President Kennedy set up uh, during his presidency prompted of course the fact that he had a, d- a sister with a developmental disability. Uh, those centres are still operating and they are the, really the lifeblood of the excellence that the American system have, has for uh, supporting people with developmental disabilities and I dreamt that we should have one in Australia. And the University of Sydney medical faculty agreed to set up a chair. Uh, Little did I realise that ultimately I would be awarded that chair. Uh, It was not in my uh, thoughts at all I thought I'll help set this up and someone will be approached. Uh, But in the end, I won't go into the long story, but in the end I was appointed. And I, um, 97 to 2009, I directed the research centre, which looked at two issues. It looked at health and it looked at um, generally just called community living and the support needs of people uh, who need to become more independent. Or the term we, we like to use, and I think it's a term that we should use with, for each of us, and that is we, we become interdependent because none of us are truly independent. And I use that concept um, that uh, that we're helping people become interdependent. Um, we teach them strategies as to how they can become inter- interdependent. In other words, reach out... <laughs> I use that when I go to the supermarket. I don't rush around looking for something. I go to, if I can find a, someone to help me, I ask them. And I teach people with intellectual disabilities to do exactly the same thing. If you're in doubt, ask someone. Mm. And that's being interdependent.
0: Trevor, as another of your projects, you visited Hanoi in Vietnam recently as part of the University of Sydney's Hoc Mai Group, working on English with health professionals. Uh, As far as Vietnam goes, is the perception of developmental disabilities similar to Australia or do you feel there's room for change?
1: There's a lot of room for change. Um, I just feel that I'm in a time warp. When I come to Vietnam, I just feel as though I'm back in Australia 50 years, 60 years ago. There is some support here for people with physical disability, but it's um, it's fairly elementary for uh, people with developmental disabilities. I think they do have special schools for all all impairments, uh, but again, I think their adult support systems are, in a sense, even non-existent.
0: Mm. Now, you had one incident that sounds
1: very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I met uh, a mother of a, a young man of uh, 27 years.
0: And where did you meet her? I met
1: her through uh, our work with the uh, the rehab department at um, uh, Mai Hospital, uh, where we a centre we well that hospital we we always visit. One of the first hospitals that we where we visited when this My um, program started um, nearly 20 years ago. Um, and we have a good relationship with uh, the rehab department of that hospital. And when I visited the hospital, uh, uh, Dr. Leanne um, introduced me to um, a mother who had a uh, uh, quite a, a tragic story in a sense. Um, I, I tend not to use the term tragic because uh, disability in itself is not a tragedy, but in a sense I think people understand what I mean by a tragic story. Uh, she has this man, a son of 27 years, uh, who has really a, what I might call a moderate level of autism, uh, autistic behaviours, um, which um, uh, means that he has difficulty making relationships. Uh, he has some perseverative behaviours. When he was a younger boy, he, his mother told me that he had very little communication skill, no oral communication. His behaviours were quite um, challenging. Um, it appears that uh, he is now speaking a little and can express his needs. He's not quite as frustrated, um, but my assessment of his need, and I keep using, I've used the term support needs quite a lot, and this is the way to look at um, a person with an impairment: what is their support need? We tend not to like, we tend not to use the term they have a moderate level of disability or a severe level of disability, we say they have a moderate level of support need. And this, this man, I would say, probably has a severe level of support need. Uh, but being 27 and, and being at home, his mother employs uh, uh, two staff to care for him, but she's quite concerned, what, what's going to happen to my boy as I get older? And, and he does nothing. He, he just stops at stays at home. And so uh, I, I'm determined, um, come hell or high water, that, that we try and set up some uh, support system for uh, boys and men and women, uh, like this particular man. Um, he's an adult man. He's not a boy anymore. And um, I ha- I have, I'll make uh, some inquiries as to whether we could develop, as we've done in Australia, say 40, 50, 60 years ago, parent groups were developed and uh, I think that's the key here if we can get some other parents uh, from my um, chatting with the mum uh, I don't think she has any contact with other parents uh, with similar needs and if we can link some other parents it develops um, a support network. Uh, The parents need that as much as the disabled person. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a I have a view that um, in the area of developmental disability and even physical disability, the, the family is also disabled.
0: Very much affected.
1: Yes. It, it's, um, and so I use that concept of, and, uh, and in fact, uh, one of my research projects has been on the concept of family quality of life um, because family quality of life is impacted by the... Uh, presence of a son or daughter with a disability. Uh, So in this man's case, if we can set up a small support group, if we could get one or two champions from the community, uh, generally they're possibly people who are reasonably well-to-do who might feel that they want to reach out. Uh, They might have some responsible position in commerce or they might have positions in government. And I think we have a moral responsibility to back up... uh, Uh, In other words, put your money where your mouth is.
0: Mm. So do you think it's achievable, forming a network?
1: Well, um, throughout my long uh, working life uh, of 60-plus years, uh, uh, I've not been blocked yet.
0: Thanks for talking with us, Professor Trevor Parmenter, Foundation Chair of the University of Sydney's Centre for Disability Studies. And from all of us here at Wellbeing, we wish you well.